before we get to our passage, which is Colossians 4, which I'm going to unpack for us, but just to refresh our memories, this is what Jesus has asked us to do. He says to us, uh, go and make disciples from all nations, not just your own neighborhood or people like you, but get out there, make disciples of all nations, baptize them when they become a disciple, and then teach them to obey all the things that the disciples have already been taught. In John chapter 20, in his gospel, there's a, a similar commissioning. This time, it's based on the life of Jesus. And Jesus says to the disciples, as the Father sent me into the world, so I'm sending you into the world. Jesus came here to save the world. I hope you're living with a sense that you too have been sent into the world. I'm sure some of you have had a go at telling other people about Jesus, and you may have found out that it's not as easy as it sounds. You know, when you grow up in a Christian home, it can be quite natural and quite easy to become a Christian. And I grew up in a Christian home, and from a very young age, I gave my life to the Lord. And so, as I grew up, first as a, as a child, and then a teenager, and later as a uh, young adult, my, my worldview was shaped by the Bible and, and my belief in God. But for someone that has been living their lives already for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, it's very difficult for those people to just drop everything that they've believed and held dear and lived by and kind of embrace a new worldview and a new way of uh, relating to God. And, and so evangelism is not something that's very easy. Sometimes it takes people a long time to, to make a commitment to the Lord. As I've said before, missionaries can work in a, in a town, in a country for 20 years before they see their, their first convert. But nevertheless, this is what we've been, been taught to do. Two weeks ago in this series, I preached from Acts chapter 17, and I made the point that... Uh, we see that people becoming a Christian is often a process, that it's no easy task. I shared from that chapter that there's no one right way to, to share the gospel. In, in all 22 occasions in the book of Acts, where somebody, usually an apostle, shares the gospel, it looks different every time. There's no simple way to sum up what the gospel is, which is why God gave us four gospels, and they're all quite long if you've ever read them. The gospel is, is big and beautiful and complex. And, and we, we share different aspects of the gospel with people depending on what they need to know. We know from 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul was an expert at this. He says when he's with Jew, Jewish people, well, then he, he behaves like a Jew, and he, he uses the Torah and the Old Testament scriptures to show, to, them that, to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. But when he's in Athens with Greeks, with people that don't accept the Bible, well, then he doesn't quote the Bible. He, in fact, quotes some of their own poets. So Paul has a very adaptable approach to sharing the gospel. And he first understands who he's talking to, and then he tailor-makes a gospel presentation for that individual person or situation. It's not that the gospel changes. 
but it's, it's what and how we share the gospel to be relevant to wherever that person or community is at. So that's what we did two weeks ago. Our passage today, as I said, is Colossians 4, verse 2 to 6, and it's a, it's a great passage. So read along with me, quietly in your heads. Oh, sorry, I, we're, for a moment we're getting all Anglican there. I mean, you are welcome to quietly read it as well. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So the first point in tonight's message has to do with prayer and the advance of the gospel. Prayer and the advance of the gospel. Do you notice how, how many times Paul refers to prayer in these few verses? Verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. That's just generally. Then he gets into verse 3, and pray for us that God may open a door for the message. And finally, verse 4, pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. It doesn't surprise me that Paul says as Christians we should be devoted to prayer. But it does surprise me that Paul writes here, pray for us that God may open a door for the message. What does Paul's request here tell us? It reminds us that the advance of the gospel is a supernatural thing. People aren't going to become Christians unless God does something in their hearts and God draws them to Jesus. It's too much of a radical mind shift. It's a supernatural work that God performs. Paul recognizes he can't just do evangelism on his own. It's not going to get anywhere even though he had many skills. That's why he says, pray for us that God may open a door for our message. Here's an example of God doing just that. It's a woman named Lydia who was a business person and she was in the clothing industry or the fabric dyeing industry. She obviously had some interest in God because she was down at a river praying and Paul goes down to the river also to pray, and they meet up, and he shares the gospel. And then we read these words in yellow, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It doesn't say Paul was such a captivating speaker that she gave her life to the Lord. It says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Here's another reminder that evangelism is God's work. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, the Corinthians are uh, all deciding who their favorite pastor is, effectively, or their favorite author or podcast or speaker or author. You get the idea, or denomination. And Paul says, look here, guys. Don't come with this, well, I'm a, a disciple of Apollos. No, I follow Paul. He says, I, Paul, I planted some seed. Well done, Paul. Apollos watered the seed. Well done, Apollos. The point is, it's God who brings about growth. It's another reminder to us that the gospel advances because God is doing something. And that's why Paul says, pray for us that the doors would be open for the message to go out. There's a resistance to the gospel. The Bible talks about a veil covering people's hearts. Their eyes are, are dull. They can't see the gospel until the Holy Spirit comes and, and enlightens them. But have a look what else Paul asks prayer for. That's the first thing. He says in verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. I find this astounding. He's been a Christian for many, many years. He has planted churches. He's been on mission trips. He's highly educated. But he says, please pray for me that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. This is the guy that wrote the book of Romans. Ever read Romans? Quite technical, quite deep. This is the guy that wrote Ephesians. And now he says, please pray for me that when I explain the gospel to people, that will be clear and that I will do a good job as I should. And there's an awful lot of murkiness when it comes to the sharing of the gospel in our day and age. There are many churches that have long stopped truly preaching the gospel. The gospel is being distorted on so many fronts today and we need to be aware of what's going on. In Romans 1, Paul talks about people, although they know God's righteous decrees, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. There's that verse. And, and the very things that they know are displeasing to God, they actively promote and approve. And this is happening in churches today. Jesus warns us, I think it's in Mark chapter 6, he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God so that you can follow your own traditions. Many people are distorting the gospel. They're all the historical theological errors that have been with us since the day one. People that don't believe in the divinity of Christ or he was some uh, super-duper person that kind of became divine. 
Other people today are, are undermining the atonement, the, 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 the central idea in the gospel that Jesus was, was punished for our sins. Some theologians and well-known speakers are referring to this as cosmic child abuse and saying, how could God, in all good faith, punish an innocent person, Jesus, for the sins of other people? They say it's not morally right. There are people fiddling with the atonement and undermining the very essence of the gospel message. There's the whole prosperity gospel message, which is a distortion of the true gospel. It's, 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 it appeals to the greed of human beings and, and to our innate selfishness, which the gospel is, is, is enabling us to overcome. But the prosperity gospel appeals to that and, and feeds into that where it becomes less about, Lord, how can I serve you and give my life in serving you? It becomes, God is this genie in a bottle that I rub the right way so that I can produce the result I want in my life. Another way the gospel is distorted today in good churches is the idea that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough for us to earn God's favor. There are another couple of hoops that you actually have to jump through. And different churches have different hoops. But the idea is always the same. It's Jesus did his bit good for Jesus. That gives you a good start. But now if you really want to please God and have God like you, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And it often involves giving money. Another threat to the gospel that I'm seeing these days is making social justice the main thing. I'm all for social justice. I'm all for restitution. I'm all for helping the poor and, and, and doing what we can to make the world a better place. But we need to be careful that the gospel message of God reconciling people to himself and changing people's hearts from the inside out, doesn't become a footnote to a Marxist ideology. So there you go. Paul had to pray, pray for me, or ask, pray for me that I may proclaim it clearly as I ought. And we need to pray for one another, and you need to pray for your pastors and the leaders in this church, that we would Proclaim God's message clearly as we ought to. Another thing I want to point out in this passage, which leads us to point two. Paul talks here about the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Just a slight digression here. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That needs to be front and central is what we're doing. Paul here it talks to, it's, it's, a, it's a message about Christ. That, that he's wanting to, to tell the world. Why does Paul use the phrase, the, the mystery 
of Christ. I'm going to offer three or four suggestions because when we come across a term in Scripture, we need to ask ourselves, well, why is it there? Try and understand what it means. Not just, oh, mystery of Christ. That's a nice idea. Move on. There were many mystery religions in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. A little bit like the Freemasons. It created social cohesion for people. You'd join a movement and they'd tell you a few secrets and then you'd feel like you were part of the in-group. That's how cults work. And they were called mystery religions because they were all based on this idea that join us and we'll, we'll let you in on a few secrets. Some of them practiced the baptism of blood. There'd be a little pit that you would uh, stand in and they'd uh, sort of slaughter a cow above you and all the blood would cover you and then you'd be on board with that particular group. So there were these mystery religions. Maybe Paul is having a dig at these guys by saying, let me tell you about the mystery of Christ. You want to know something special? I've got something for you. Maybe he uses the phrase, the mystery of Christ, because the identity of Jesus is secret. It's only if the Holy Spirit opens your eyes that you see it. You can't work it out. You have to be told. But maybe Paul is using the phrase, the mystery of Christ, and this is the one I prefer, although you can always mix and match, but this needs to be part of the answer. Maybe Paul's using the phrase, the mystery of Christ, out of reverence, because Paul himself understands that Jesus is so profound, so awesome, so amazing, that there's always going to be an element of mystery for us. We're never going to button Jesus down, put him in a box. That's why Paul speaks about the mystery of Christ. And this is what I'm trying to tell people. Let's get a little bit more practical. That's the theory over and done with. Third point in tonight's sermon, make the most of every opportunity. Where do I get that? Well, from verse 5. Paul says, be wise in the way you act and behave towards outsiders. That doesn't mean you can be unwise when you're in the church, okay? Be wise in the way you act, although some would think maybe that's what it means. Make the most of every opportunity. This is a good moment to stop and think. What are the opportunities that God is giving to you in your life to share the mystery of Christ, the gospel, with others? The implication here is that we all have opportunities. That's why it says we must make the most of it. Are we being wise in, in how we're using the opportunities God has given to us? The Great Commission is not so much go into all the world. The Greek is more as you go, make disciples. Sharing our faith with others is something that should happen naturally as we go about our daily lives. And we do it as God opens doors for us and as God shows us whose heart He's opening. 
we all have opportunities. Are we making the most of them? And often starting your day, Lord, open doors today for me to share. Help me to see who those people are that you're, you're, you're drawing to yourself. Then when the opportunities come by, we're, we're more adept at taking the gap God gives us. And my final point is about our conversation. Our conversation with people. Verse 6. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. People today love St. Francis of Assisi. He was a very wealthy person who got radically transformed by God and then spent his life, gave up his wealth, and spent his life as, as a preacher. One of the famous things he said, was alleged to have said, is preach Jesus and, if necessary, use words. I mean, we've all read that in the various books. But we do have to use words. <laughs> you can't witness by stealth. You can't be that person that goes to work for 25 years and just hopes that at some point people are going to see by the smile on your face and your little I love Jesus sticker that you are a Christian. No, there, there are times when we have to speak about the Lord the mystery of Christ. We're told that our conversation as Christians should always be full of grace. What's the opposite of having conversations that are full of grace? It's having conversations where you're always moaning, you're criticizing, you're negative. The, these are conversations that are not full of grace. Conversations that are full of grace is when you like people that don't deserve to be liked. Conversations full of grace is when you listen patiently to people, where you are encouraging, supportive, empathetic, kind. This is the kind of language and conversations that Christians should be known for. And the mouth speaks what's filling the heart. So if you find that they're not conversations that are full of grace coming out of your mouth, you need to look six inches lower. That's probably where the problem lies. Let your conversation be always full of grace. I like what Paul says next. Seasoned with salt seasoned with salt. Whenever I buy chips at a restaurant, I always have to say, mm -mm, don't put stuff on my chips. I'm going to do that. <laughs> Firstly, I want to avoid all the allergens and all that stuff, keep the blood pressure low. But there's a difference between seasoning your food with salt and kind of and when we share the gospel with people, the idea is not to shove salt down people's throats. It's to, it's to sprinkle a little bit of gospel, to, to, season, to season your conversation. 
Salt in the Bible was used to add flavor, to preserve things, to stop things rotting. You know, as a Christian, there are certain places where you can't really witness. If you're an auditor, you can't go into a, a, a company and after you've been there for a few days, say, sit down, everybody, I've just got something I want to share with you today. Probably going to lose your job if you try that. As a teacher, you're being paid to teach people, to impart information, to encourage learning to take place, which is sometimes outside of your control as a teacher. You can't use that time to to preach to the people that are in your classroom. So, so how do you get around this thing? Well, it's having conversations that are full of grace, that are seasoned with salt. How do we get around it? It's, it's in our conversation with people, throwing in a comment about your relationship with the Lord. Nobody can fault you for that. You're just sharing your perspective. It's giving a different take on an issue because you are a Christian. Every time you express gratitude and thanks to God for anything that's good in your life, that speaks to people. We need to have conversations seasoned with salt, seasoned with the gospel. And there's this interesting construction that I still haven't quite got my mind around so that you may know how to answer everybody. So apparently if you have a conversation always full of grace and you season it just right, <laughs> so that you may know how to answer everybody, it, it obviously creates this opportunity for you to answer the questions that are going to naturally arise and, and open that door when you know a heart's open. Sometimes people come into the kingdom of God because of a powerful argument. Here's an example, a case in point. C.S. Lewis, an Oxford professor, he describes becoming a Christian in 1929. And he says as he knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. He was literally dragged into God's kingdom against his will because he finally had to yield to the, the logic of the Christian gospel and worldview. We do need to be able to give an answer to those who ask us for the reason, for the hope that we have, that hope that comes out in those conversations that are seasoned with the gospel. In summary then, we've seen tonight the importance of prayer in sharing our faith. Paul says, pray for me. That doors may be open for our message. We see it's God who opens hearts and doors. If Paul asked for prayer to be able to share the gospel clearly with people, how much more do we need it? There are many challenges to the gospel message. We need to be careful that people don't distort the true gospel. Paul speaks about the mystery of Christ. 
and let our conversations be full of grace and sprinkled with salt. I'm going to pray, and while I'm doing that, the worship team's welcome to, to come up to the front.